0: Elijah is in the category of what I think were the greatest men that ever walked the earth. And then again, 300 more times, in the New Testament, God is telling us that this same Jesus who has come is coming again. If it doesn't come to pass, it doesn't come from God. If it's not accurate, the prophet is to be executed. God said there's coming a day when I'm going to shake the world. But something will not be shaken. Amen. It's good to see you all here once again. I'm so encouraged every time I look out and see how many people are interested in what God's Word has to say about Bible prophecy. And we've had some fun looking at some various passages across the Scriptures, and we're going to be looking at yet another important prophecy tonight from the book of Ezekiel. And this is a prophecy that really sets up the sequence of how I believe everything is going to begin to unfold in the last days of planet Earth. And it's a prophecy that deals with the question what will become of Israel's enemies? Israel has is no shortage of enemies. Is that true? Her enemies go back quite far. They go back, you think of the Egyptians, and you think of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Philistines and the Midianites and the Amorites and the Amalekites and the Hittites and the Slagtites, and the Cellulites and the Yamabirites. You know. Maybe not those last three, but been a lot, been a lot of enemies, a lot of enemies today. Uh, there were enemies in the New Testament. You think of the Romans, this is the 20th century, you got Nazi Germany. Uh, There are are numerous people throughout history that have wished Israel ill. Who are Israel's prominent enemies today? There are some some nations that might pop into your mind. And what they generally have in common is they are Arab nations. Uh, There are Islamic nations that dislike Israel a great deal. Is there hostility between Jew and Arab today? There is. Do you ever wonder where that began? It's been going on a lot longer than than many of us are probably even aware. Uh, What is the origin for that animosity, that antagonism? Is that something that the Bible addresses? Is that something that plays a role in the fulfillment of prophecy? And the answer to both those questions is yes. 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 And so we're going to tackle the first question, does the Bible address this? And I want you to turn, if you've got your Bibles, to Genesis 16. And we're going to look at the origin of this antagonism between Jew and Arab. And this portion of Genesis, chapter 16, deals with Abraham and God's covenant with Abraham. And you may recall that God handpicked Abraham... Uh, his name then was Abram or Abram, some have called him. He was in Mesopotamia and he was was not Father Abraham back then. He was not a righteous Jew. There was no such thing as a Jew when God found this man, Abram. He was a pagan. He was from Mesopotamia. He worshipped a moon god named Suen for Pete's sake. If you look at that historically and God took this man, and he said, I'm going to be your God, and he said, I'm going I'm to show you a land that I'm, I want you to go to, and I'm going to make a covenant with you, and I'm going to make you great, I'm going to make a mighty nation of you, I'm going to make your descendants like the stars, like the grains of sand on the shore, and I'm going to give you this land, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we call that the Abrahamic covenant. And uh, it was an unconditional covenant. That means that Abraham didn't have to do anything but believe it. That's what an unconditional covenant is. All you need is faith. But one of the things that Abraham needed to have faith in was the idea that from him, God was going to create a nation. Well, there was a problem with that. You see, Abraham was old. He was old. His wife was old. That thing that you have to do in order to birth a nation, it didn't work so hot with the two of them. They were And it never had, quite frankly. Sarah was barren, had always been barren, and now she was past childbearing years, and so this was truly going to have to be a miracle, and so uh We know from Scripture, Abraham and Sarah are counted among the faithful. If you read Hebrews 11, you see that. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Sarah. And yet, these two faithful people, by the account of Scripture, they went through some lapses in faith. They went through some missteps. And one misstep that they went through, we see in Genesis 16. Look at verse 1. It says, Now Sarai... That was her name then. We know her as Sarah. She was Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. Well, I'll just bet he did. You know, here's Sarai. She's like, you know, I can't have kids. I've got it. Why don't you have sex with my handmaid? And Abram said, I can do that. (laughs) You know, and so what we're seeing here is the inception of something that will become disastrous. And in your notes, the historic animosity between Jew and Arab began with Abraham's attempt to manipulate the covenant. All right. All right. That's where this all begins. This is Abraham and Sarah seeking to accomplish God's will, man's way. And that never goes well. This was not God's plan. Uh, This was not how to bring about the fulfillment of prophecy in this fashion. So verse 3, it says, So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went in to hagar and she conceived and when she hagar saw that she had conceived she looked with contempt on her mistress and so here it begins you see this hate brewing between these two women and it's not going to stop with them it's going to pervade it's going to go on to their offspring respectively and if we go on we see that god speaks to hagar and he speaks kindly to this egyptian servant Uh, Because this is not Hagar's fault. She's done nothing wrong here. This this is, by the way, this is the original handmaid's tale, if you know what I'm talking about. And this is an injustice, what's been done to her. This is horrible what's been done to her. And we read in Genesis 16:11, it says, And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. And you uh, because the Lord has listened. To your affliction Ishmael means God hears that's what the name means and it says he Ishmael will be a wild donkey of a man I've been called that before uh, Donkey isn't the exact word that was used but uh, it says that Ishmael's hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen what you need to know what you need to know right now about Ishmael. Is that he would become the father of the Arab race. The son of Abraham, the first biological son of Abraham, was the father of the Arab race. The Arabs would descend from Ishmael. And this prophecy says that Ishmael would become a wild donkey. Now, that's not an insult. Uh, what this speaks of, specifically, the word for donkey is, is the word that refers to the onager. An onager is a donkey-like beast that roams the desert in that part of the world. It's notorious for being untamable. It is a wild uh, uh, creature, and the Lord is saying, Ishmael, your son, Hagar, shall be untamable. He shall not be tamed. He shall be resolute. He will not be easily manipulated. He cannot be coerced to adapt to the ways of other peoples. Does that sound Like that fits with the history of Arab civilizations around the world. I think of a few years back, you know, several years back after 9-11. What did we do? We went into Afghanistan. We liberated Afghanistan from the Taliban. And we installed this westernized form of government. We promoted democracy. We invested. We resourced. We equipped. We had a military presence there. We trained their forces to deal with outsiders, with terrorists, with Islamofascists, all of that. We were there 20 years. A couple years ago, we pull out within hours. Taliban, back in charge. Untamable, untameable, that part of the world. We see this carried out. And so Genesis tells us, Ishmael is born. Verse 15, it says, And Hagar bore Abram a son, Abram called Uh, the name of the son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. It says he was 86 years old, a new daddy at 86. Amazing. And then God remembers Sarah. And we look at Genesis 21, verse 1. It says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Imagine that, God keeping his promises. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah, not Hagar, Sarah, because that's God's plan, she bore him a son named Isaac. His name was Isaac. Isaac. In the Hebrew, and it means laughter. His name means laughter. You recall when Sarah was told of God's plan that by this time next year she's going to have a son, what'd she do? She laughed. She just she could, couldn't even fathom that. And God called her out on that. Now here God has delivered. This child is born and Sarah owns that moment, that lapse of faith, and she, to honor the Lord, names the child Laughter. It's just an acknowledgment of his greatness, of the feebleness, feebleness of man and of man's way. But then we see in verse 9 of chapter 21, there is a weaning ceremony for Isaac, and it says in verse 9, but Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. He's laughing. We've got Ishmael at this weaning ceremony for Isaac, and he is laughing at what? He's laughing at Isaac. He's laughing at Abraham's son by Sarah mocking him. And so in verse 10, she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. And so you got division right here. You've got animosity. You got bad blood. And it's been brewing for some time, no doubt. You probably had jealousy going back to when Hagar conceived and Sarah was unable to do so. There was probably jealousy. Then uh, there was probably a little bit of bitterness because of her own unbelief. And God is telling her this is going to happen hasn't happened, and she's bitter. Then He softens her heart, does a miracle, she conceives, she has this miraculous child. Now maybe there's jealousy on the part of Hagar toward her mistress, and uh, on the part of Ishmael toward this child of promise because Ishmael is not the child of promise. There's some hard feelings there. If you recall, God sent Abraham up on that mount. What did he say? Go up on Mount Moriah. Take your son, your only son, Isaac. Your only son? Isaac? I mean, if you're Ishmael, you're within earshot of that. that, well, yeah, that that's got to hurt. That's got to sting right there. He, he's not part of the promise. Why? Because his birth was not God's plan, it was a plan hatched by human ingenuity, not by divine purpose. It's not personal. It wasn't wasn't his fault uh, that he was was used in that way. God had mercy on Ishmael. Uh, God would provide an inheritance for this child outside of the land, meet all of his needs, but he would not be part of the fulfillment of God's covenant. The promise was always Abraham, through Sarah, would have a son and eventually a nation. And that was God's way. And so there's got to be a parting of ways. These two boys cannot continue to live under the same tent. It's not going to work. Later, the Apostle Paul is going to take the example of Ishmael and Isaac. He's going to use them to talk about the two covenants. you got the covenant of law it will be manipulated by the Jews to earn the favor of God. And they will add to it and they will try to use it to obtain salvation. And then you've got this covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace is simple belief in the promise of God that God is gonna do what God said he would do. And Paul will use Ishmael to represent the covenant of law, which is inferior to the covenant of grace, which Paul will use he will use Isaac to represent that covenant. And so these two boys cannot stay in the same camp. Law can have nothing to do with grace. And this child of of man's ingenuity and, and works can have nothing to do with the child of promise, of God doing what he said he would do. And so that is the origin of the tension between Jew and Arab. Now that's gotten worse, hasn't it? And what is the reason it's gotten worse? Well, in your notes, this animosity has been magnified by Islam. By Islam. Uh, The Quran identifies Ishmael as the child of promise. The Hebrew Scriptures, as you know, identifies Isaac as the child of promise. And so Islam has exacerbated this animosity. It was already a bad situation. They have made it way, way worse. Now, let me say this. Your Bible is not anti-Arab, okay? I want to make that very, very clear because tonight we're going to talk about the Jews and the Arabs and what the future holds regarding Israel's enemies, but I need to say it plainly. God does not, has not ever hated Arabs, and your Bible is not anti-Arab, okay? God loves the Arab people as he loves all people, but, but let me say this. Islam is completely in incompatible with God's holy word, and in fact, in your notes, Islam is a satanic religion with a natural hostility toward Israel, toward Christianity, and pretty much anybody who won't convert to Islam, okay? Uh, now, that, that is that is hot, hot, hot to say in certain parts of this world, all right, but it's true, Now, not all Arabs are Muslim. In fact, many are Christians. I know some of them, but predominantly this is a religion that has swept around the world. It's the fastest growing religion in the world. It's growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, Not all Muslims are as hateful toward Israel as some are. That is true. But I do believe in the core teachings of Islam, there is an antagonism toward the non-convert, particularly toward the Jew. They hate Israel. Uh, but what will become of the enemies of Israel? That's what we're going to look at tonight. And of course, many of them are Arab nations. And we will see what Scripture has to say on this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon our time and your word. Thank you for the, the gift of prophecy, God. Uh, Lord, prophecy is the spirit of Jesus, and so we we look to it with great hunger and openness, and we pray that you would reveal to us what you have to say and why it's important, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Ezekiel 38 is where we want to go. We're going to look at something that I believe is the first major event of the end times. Not everybody agrees with that assessment. Uh, my sequence is that. This, what we're going to talk about tonight, is something that will happen uh, very near the beginning of the unfolding of the remainder of the events on the the eschatological timetable here. So we're going to look at Ezekiel 38, starting in verse 1. The prophet says that the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward Gog, Gog, in the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, thus says the Lord God, behold... I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws, and I will bring you out, and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords, Persia, Cush, and Put are with them, and all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his hordes, Beth to from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes, many peoples, are with you. And so, what we're looking at here is the makings of an invasion force. And this will be an invasion that will take place in the future. It has not happened yet. It is in the future. Now, as I say that, if you read that carefully, you might be thinking of a question. You might have had this pop into your head, as did I, first time I read this. Pastor Scott, if this is a future invasion, what's with all the primitive weaponry? Why are we talking about these antiquated armaments? If it's a future battle, why are they fighting with swords and shields and horses and such? What is that? Well, in your notes, there's two possibilities for the way that this is described. We can explain it this, this way. Number one, it could be that the means of warfare may devolve in the future for some reason. All right, right now. Uh, now and that that's not technically or necessarily the case, but right now technology has advanced to the point where something called a, an electromagnetic pulse could be detonated and if it is if if it is on a scale that's big enough, it could render all modern war machinery inert. It could render it ineffective completely. It could eliminate all forms of modern warfare, and so we might at some point, because of some unforeseen development along those lines, we might have to go back to killing each other in the good old-fashioned ways, all right? It's possible. We could be carrying old-school weaponry into battle once again. It could be like Braveheart again. We don't know. That's one possibility. Now, I think what is more likely is number two, that Ezekiel is dealing with the limitations of the Hebrew language to relate to what he is seeing in this vision, okay? He, he employs words of warfare that the Jews would understand and possibly the only terms that he knows uh, how to describe what he is seeing. I mean, how, how would an ancient man like Ezekiel describe uh, a tank? We don't know. We don't know what that looked like to him. How would he, how would be, he be able to articulate what he's seeing in the way of modern body armor or helmets, Okay, Uh, or, or, uh, you know, what what a rocket launcher might look like. We don't know. And so he he could be using language of warfare from his own time, just as you or I might be prone to do, okay? So those are a couple of possibilities. Now, what I want to do is I want to look at this invasion, and I want to start by looking at the players in your notes, the players. And we're going to start, you notice a list of names as we went through that passage, and the first name we saw was the name Gog, G-O-G, Gog. Who is this person called Gog? Well, in your notes, Gog is probably not a proper name. It's probably not a personal name. If some of you got out your phone to Google that name, Gog, looking for some world leader right now named Gog, you're probably not going to find it. Okay. Uh, More than likely, this is a title. Like czar, or like pharaoh, or Caesar, or president, or something like that. This person is the leader of this invasion we know that he's an individual because he's referred to several times he's addressed several times he's called a prince in verse two that implies authority he's someone who has authority certainly has military authority he puts together a coalition of nations as we're going to see and there are many theories about who this person is we there've been many theories throughout history they don't they don't really make a lot of sense In the scope of history to this point, there is a current figure on the world stage that some people have gotten excited about, they've gotten a little anxious about, given his current activities, and we'll talk about some of that in just a bit tonight. But what you need to know is this is an individual, and the plan to oppose Israel starts in his mind. And then just to let you know, there are some scholars who say that Gog, they think Gog may be a supernatural entity, like a demon. Uh, a demonic general that might stir up earthly forces, perhaps. and That could be, but uh, uh, I believe that Gog is, at a minimum, a demon-possessed human being. I believe that he is controlled demonically, but I do believe that he is flesh and blood because he is dealt with in a very physical and real way on the earth. Now, as for his, his friends, who are they? Well, let's look at, in your notes, these nations following Gog. What I want you to know going in here is that the rest of these nations in our text correlate with modern-day geopolitical nations. You're going to be able to to identify these names with names that you could read on a map today, okay? Uh, And you have a map. I've given you a map. It's in your notes. I don't have it on the screen tonight. You can download this on the church website and on the YouTube channel Okay, uh, and before we get into all of this, I want to show you something. Uh, what, what I read to you earlier from Ezekiel thirty-eight—that is the English Standard Version. Now I trust that version; I use it a lot. I teach out of it on the weekends, often on Wednesdays. However, that translation omits a name in this text that is included in other translations. So I want to show you that same passage in the New King James. Here's how it reads: Ezekiel thirty-eight, verse two. It says, "Son of man." Set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh. Rosh, okay? That is the name, Rosh, that is omitted in the ESV. And it goes on in the New King James, Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh. There it is again. And so in your notes, how do we identify Rosh? Number one, Rosh... Is greater Russia. Greater Russia. Now you may be saying, Pastor Scott, that sounds too too easy. Doesn't it? It does. I know. I know. It does. And the truth is there's no shortage of people, accusations that are made against dispensationalists against students of prophecy that that read and interpret this as greater Russia. A lot of people, they accuse people who say that as imposing modern sensibilities onto the text, that we're looking at geopolitical circumstances today and we're trying to force that into the scripture. They say you're just reading Russia into the text because the word sounds like Russia and it's just convenient for you to say. Look, the word rush is the exact same word that was used as a name for the people of the Araxis, the Araxis region, which is present-day Georgia, not the state, the country. Some of you are like, I knew Georgia was satanic. That's <laughs> the, the nation of Georgia, as in part of the former Soviet Union, Georgia. Okay, Georgia is technically a republic. They are aligned. They've been a- annexed by current modern-day Russia. Uh, But it's in that region. It was once part of the totality of Russia. Uh, You've got this title, the Prince of Rosh. And the interpretation is that it's connected to Asiatic Russia. That interpretation is confirmed by the Imperial Dictionary. And In fact, there is a scholar by the name of Bishop Louther, and he writes this, and I quote, Rosh. Taken as a proper name in Ezekiel signifies the inhabitants of Scythia, from whom modern Russians derived their name. The Orientals called the peoples who dwelt on the banks of the river Araxes. They called them the Ros or Rosh. And the Arabic name for that river was also called Rosh. Okay? So we're talking about people from the geographic region That eventually was was occupied by individuals who took the root word Rosh and from that extracted the modern day name Russia. And they are called Russians, okay? But it's derived from this word, Rosh. And so that is what Rosh represents in Ezekiel 38. And that is fascinating, particularly for people today who watch the news recently okay is there anything going on in recent years that might raise an eyebrow about this interpretation I mean some people have got a little antsy about something going on you got a rush I'm moving in to Ukraine uh, just as they have in recent years against Georgia rush okay they've annexed several nations could we be seeing some pieces move into place is that possible? Sure. Sure, that's, that's possible. It's absolutely possible. Pastor Scott, is Putin GOG? Uh, I have no idea. No idea. I mean, could be. Could he be GOG? Sure. Is that something we need to be caught up in? No. No, you don't need to be caught up in that. Can we watch with great interest? Yes, absolutely. I got no problem with that. You want to watch the news, have a Bible in one hand, do a little cross-referencing, be my guest, okay? Just don't be making any life decisions based on that, okay? Don't don't sell your house based on some conclusion that you're drawing from your time in the Bible and the evening news, all right? But you're always better armed if you're a student of prophecy, okay? Just, Just watch with interest and with confidence that God knows what he's doing, amen? Does he know what he's doing? Yes, he does. That's right. But I'll tell you this. We're not seeing Gog and Magog. This event is not playing out on the world stage right now. I promise you that. Because Ukraine is not Israel. Now, some people have tried to make a correlation there. They say, well, the president is Jewish. Vladimir Zelensky is a Jew. And they try to say that. No, that's, that's that's not good enough. Because this event that we're studying tonight takes place in Israel. In the land of Israel, in those mountains. Now, could the whole conflict over there be an example of someone accumulating power, building momentum, and they eventually go on to do something that is prophesied in Scripture? Sure, it's possible, absolutely. I'm not going to shout that from the mountaintops, you know, but it's interesting. And what it all shows us, I believe, is that the Bible is rational. This is not Unbelievable stuff, what we're about to read. This is all reasonable. This could happen. And current events show us that it could happen. It absolutely could happen. Uh, so Rosh is greater Russia. Number two in your notes, Magog. Magog is modern-day Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Afghanistan. That's a whole lot of stands. Right there, okay it, all of these nations make up the region then called Magog. and most of these used to be in the former Soviet Union and they are all heavily Islamic, heavily Islamic. Uh, Russia tried to invade Afghanistan years ago, didn't take, didn't really work out for them. Uh, but this this these are the nations of that region, okay? I hope you were able to jot those down because I'm moving on, all right? If you didn't, that's what the video is for on YouTube. Okay, so uh, number three, we've got in your notes, Mishek Tubal Gomer and Beth Togarma, Gomer and Beth Togarma. No, not that Gomer, different Gomer. These nations uh, make up modern-day Turkey. Modern-day Turkey, okay? Turkey is not historically over-friendly with Israel, all right? Uh, And then number four in your notes, Persia. Well, that's easy. That's Iran. That's Iran. So we're already seeing some of Israel's greatest enemies in the world today mentioned in this text. Then we come into some African contingencies. Number five, Kush. In your notes, this is Sudan and Ethiopia. Sudan and Ethiopia. Now, this region would also include one of the newest nations in the world. I believe it is the newest nation in the world, South Sudan. So north and south Sudan would be encompassed in this region right here. That's Kush. And then number six, Put. That is modern-day Algeria, Libya, and possibly Tunisia. So these are all out of Africa. You might say, what's with all these African nations? You don't see these particular uh, countries mixing it up uh, directly with Israel. Look, anything can happen in short order. They might not be on Israel's radar as a prime enemy today, but they could be rather quickly. Things happen rapidly. Incidentally, uh, there is involved in this current incursion into, well, it's full blown war now, I would say, but in the early days, there was involved a group at the behest of Putin. It was called the Wagner Group W A G N E R, Wagner. Essentially, they were an army of mercenaries, and their task was to move into Ukraine and assassinate Zelensky. That was their assignment. And uh, they, they served at the pleasure of uh, Vladimir Putin. And they get their name Wagner group from the name Wagner, the composer Wagner, who, who wrote, you know, Ride of the Valkyries from Apocalypse Now. And it, because their goal is to shock and awe, you know. I love the smell of napalm in the morning is, is that scene, right? But they operate out of Africa. That's where they are from. And in fact, they've been involved in several conflicts, namely in Libya which is one of the nations mentioned here. So it's very, very feasible that a present situation could evolve into something like we're reading about here. I'm not saying it will. I'm not saying it has, but it's possible. Okay, now, on the map that you've got, that little map that I included, there is a a tiny little sliver right in the center of that map. That, my friends, is Israel. That's Israel. You see how little it is? It's just itty bitty. So whenever people say, Israel's the aggressor, or Israel is, is provocative. They're, they're antagonistic toward other nations. I just want you to note how small they are. And I want you to see, they are surrounded by nations that hate them. They've got the Mediterranean on one side, they've got the Arabian Desert on the other. Why did God put his children right there? Well, that, my friends, is the center of the earth. That's the center of the earth. This land is given to them you might you might remember the original purpose for Israel when we looked at the the dispensations what was what was under that covenant of promise what was god's mandate you're going to be my people and you will model for all the other peoples in the in the world what it means to follow me and so they would m- follow the example of Israel and therefore follow yahweh that was the mandate, it worked for a little while, but then Israel disobeyed. And now instead of that land at the center of the earth being a bridge for other nations to Yahweh through the example of Israel, now that land, it's a bridge for armies who desire it, who want to claim it, who want to conquer it. Now, what do you notice about the nations that we're looking at here? Well, in your notes, they're all current enemies of Israel. And they are predominantly Arab an Islamic, all right. Now, Russia is not considered to be Islamic. Historically, there are many, many Muslims that reside in Russia. Their government is not an Islamic government, but uh, certainly many Muslims live there. They are very cozy with a lot of Arab Islamic. Nations, uh, they're in deep with Syria, big partners with Syria. They're in deep with Iran, highly instrumental, involved in Iran's quest for nuclear power. They, they, The Russians benefit and profit from all these relationships. They sell weapons to, to all kinds of Arab nations. They've got mainly commercial interests. They like to be the power broker. They like to make money. Uh, but they will absolutely align themselves with other nations who might have... A different agenda and that could certainly be the case in the end times here with this battle now one glaring omission from this list of, of Israel haters is Iraq All right, Iraq would logically make this list we don't see them there uh, one reason is they're not as powerful as they once were uh, and so that's that may be why they're not there we, we've seen a lot of changes happen in Iraq one day they were at one point they were a threat we've seen Hussein toppled since that time Uh, They might have a very, very different role in the future, this geographic area called Iraq. If you're a student of prophecy, you read Revelation, you know about the rise of Babylon. Uh, Ancient Babylon is present-day Iraq. And so in Revelation, we see that that Babylon will represent a financial hub. It will represent a a, a center of commerce. It will be a base of operations, essentially, for the, the, the religion and the the, com, the commercial dealings of the Antichrist and his regime. And so uh, there is a role for Iraq, I believe. You can make that case in the future, but apparently it does not have a home in this coalition right here. Now, those are the players. Let's look at the scene. What is the scene? What's going to happen with these nations who want to destroy Israel? Look at verse 7. Be ready and keep ready, you and all your hosts that have assembled all about you. Be a guard for them After many days, you, Gog, will be mustered in the latter years. Important phrase. You can underline that. We're going to come back to that. He said, In the latter years, you will go against the land that is restored from war, the land whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely. All of them. You will advance, coming on like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your hordes and many peoples with you. That last verse in your notes, Ezekiel 38, uh, verse 9, sounds like an airborne invasion. You're you're, going to come on like a storm. You will be a cloud. You ever see a movie about D-Day? All the paratroopers that filled the sky uh, perhaps this will be like that maybe be an aerial assault might be an aerial invasion or a strike with like fighters bombers who knows verse 10 thus says the lord god on that day thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme and say i will go up against the land of unwalled villages i will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates. What does this all mean? In your notes, unwalled villages refers to a time of relative peace. And quite frankly, that could be right now. It could be the present. This could be a time of relative peace. Now, you might argue against that. You might say, well, they've got all these enemies. And I just saw a bombing the other day in the news and all this stuff. Look, Israel's got enemies. That is, that is true. But I will say this. A day with enemies for Israel is a pretty peaceful day with a lot of other nations. And the reason is uh, because of their sense of security. You read about all this stuff. When you visit Israel, as we will one day do, we're going to have a trip eventually. I just need a little time, okay? Just be patient with me. Uh, If you ever go there, you will feel very safe. You will feel very safe. Uh, the, The airline you take into uh, Tel Aviv or wherever, El Al, safest airline in the world. They know how to do it. They know how to keep things safe. And they have a sense of security. And even if they didn't, that we're only a treaty away from temporary peace. The world can change like that. Uh, but if it's the same sense of security that they have at present, I believe that that might come from the fact that since their inception in 1948, they have fought four wars. They've won them all. Nobody's ever come against them successfully. I would imagine Israel thinks it could repel pretty much any enemy. I think that they are supremely confident. But Gog is going to hatch this plan. And here's what he's thinking in verse 12: to seize spoil and carry off plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited, and the people that were gathered from the nations who've acquired livestock and goods who dwell at the center of the earth. Who are these people? Well, obviously, you know, but in your notes, just to clear it up, we can identify them. People gathered from the nations. That's Israel. They've been gathered. They're already gathered, right? We talked about how they were dispersed after 70 AD. Rome destroyed the city. They scattered, fled, eventually into Europe. They were persecuted there. They got blamed for everything, every war, every battle, every disease, the Black Plague, etc. They get chased off into other regions. They end up in Poland. They end up in Russia. They stay there till about 1918. A bunch of them comes back, settles in Israel once again. And then by 1948, they're a nation with a charter. It's amazing. They've been gathered back in the land at the center of the earth. Now, what is it that makes them a target? Well, in your notes, I would say they're a target for Gog because even today, there's something to be desired. They are something to be... The land is valuable Uh, Their contributions to the world are valuable. Technology, science, medicine. Israel is a flourishing land. Agriculture, they have made incredible strides. God has blessed them. They have the world's 16th best economy. And I would say there may be something that is discovered there in the future that will make them even more desirable to these aggressors. Could be an ore of some kind could be precious stones could be some sort of fuel source I don't know but it's going to be irresistible these the, these forces are going to come in Gog is going to be drooling over Israel he's going to want that land and everything in it and if he is anything like Putin that makes perfect sense that makes perfect sense uh, Putin is not a man who uh, strikes me as being content if he is successful against Ukraine, and I don't know they will be, but if he is, do you think he's going to stop there? No. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. He didn't stop before; he wasn't happy with, uh, you know, Georgia, right, and others. So I think he's going to move on, and that's historically how certain men are. Napoleon, if he hadn't been stopped at Waterloo, he'd have kept going. Same with Hitler, right? Uh, these kinds of people have to be stopped, and. Gog will have this insatiable hunger for power. His his allies have other things in mind. They want to wipe Israel off the map. And that is true of these modern Arab nations. Iran, they have said so, using those very words, in fact. But we see that though Gog is coming to take spoil, there will be protest. Verse 13 says, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all its leaders will say to you, have you come to see spoil? Have you assembled your host to carry off plunder, to to carry away silver and gold, take away livestock and goods, and, and seize great spoil? I mean, you just hear the indignation. They are aghast. They're clutching their pearls at this, you know. But what you don't see is action. They're just condemning. They're just, you know, feigning horror. It's just words. Verse 13 in your notes may well reflect actionless words from a diplomatic body. And I can't help but think of the UN. You know, I can't help but think of what they might say if Russia came down on Israel. You know, there's a lot of nations, when Putin moves into Ukraine, a lot of nations just kind of, they condemned it, but they didn't really do anything, you know. Uh, and here there seems like there would be a collective wisdom, you know, the pooled, perceived nobility of these stuffed shirts issuing these statements of condemnation but not backing it up, just virtue signaling to the max here. No deeds, just words, just talk. And uh, they don't want to really speak up. and I mean, they don't really want to step in there because they don't want to be God's enemy. They don't want to get in his way. And so... Here we have this invasion and then we're gonna see what transpires. And I wanna show you in your notes four elements of God's judgment because the voices of the world are not gonna do anything. God's gonna do something. God's gonna do something. Number one, he's going to manifest his judgment in your notes with an earthquake. An earthquake. And this is no ordinary earthquake. This will be devastating. Look at verse 18. It says, but on that day, The day that Gog shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, my wrath will be roused in my anger for my jealousy, and in my blazing wrath I declare, on that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the ground, and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence, and the mountains will be thrown down, and the cliffs shall fall, and every wall shall tumble to the ground. This will not be a four-pointer. All right? This is going to be a devastating quake, maybe the worst in world history to that point. Mountains will fall. Cliffs will crumble. You can imagine that troops will be destroyed, that transportation is going to be disrupted. Chaos will ensue. And then number two in your notes... There will be infighting, infighting. They're going to fight one another. Verse 21, I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. Meaning the forces of Gog will fight against one another. There's going to be something that causes a derision that results in the forces of Gog turning on each other. Has that ever happened in biblical history? You remember Gideon, right? Judges 7, uh, he's going up against the Midianites. He's already whittled down his army from thousands to 300. He comes against Midian, which by contrast, numbers like the sea. And here's what it says in, in Judges 7. I'm going to just look at verse 22. It says, when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword, that's every Midianite sword, against his comrade and against all the army and the army fled as far as Beth Shittah, towards zerera as far as the border of Abel Mahola by Tabat. And so the Midianites awaken in that instance in the middle of the night to the sound of, of, of trumpets, to the sound of breaking pottery, and they freak out and they turn on each other and they just start killing each other because God confuses them in such a way that that He accomplishes a victory without Gideon even lifting a sword. Now, eventually, the Israelites chase these survivors into these other regions and finish the job, but this is a supernaturally orchestrated attack. And so God is capable, he has demonstrated himself to, to be that way, of setting an army against itself. How might that play out in a future scenario? Well, he, he is going to sovereignly induce these armies of these various nations in the invading force to turn on one another, and to kill each other. This could be because there's confusion following that massive earthquake, okay? Uh, In the pandemonium, uh, there could be a communication breakdown of some sort between the armies. Maybe maybe they're not gonna be able to adequately communicate and get messages uh, confused. They're gonna begin attacking each other. And I can imagine targeting systems going haywire, missiles perhaps being launched errantly at allies, which would then perhaps initiate self-defense measures that would cost more lives. I mean, there's a number of ways that this could play out. But God is a creative God. I mean, he's creative in all his ways, including how he initiates destruction. And so that is our God. And then number three in your notes, he's going to manifest his judgment through disease disease. Ezekiel 38, 22, it says, with pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him. You've got this earthquake, you've got this infighting. What do you have as a result? A lot of dead bodies. A lot of dead bodies. And that's a massive force, so it's a lot, the number of dead bodies. And transportation's at a standstill, so medicine and supplies are not coming in. So you're not transporting the wounded out. So people are dying by the droves. Nobody can get to them. They're just laying there over time. And the dead begin to pile up and they remain unburied. And that is a recipe for disaster. You're going to have birds. You're going to have other predators smelling a feast. They're going to come down. You could have a pandemic that would result. Okay. We know a little bit about that. It's going to be way worse. Number four, in your notes, storms, hail, fire, and sulfur, okay? Storms, hail, fire, and sulfur. If you didn't get all that, it's in the verse we're going to look at now. He says, and I will rain upon him and his hordes, and the many peoples who are with him, torrential rains, and hailstones, fire, and sulfur. You've seen a pretty big hailstone before? I mean, I've seen, them, I've seen them like that. I know some people have seen them like that. There's no telling what God's going to cook up here. And I think they will be targeted hailstones. They could be targeted. They will land where God wants them to land. And undoubtedly, these torrential rains will produce flooding. And amazingly, it says fire, fire. You know, this all kind of reminds me of, of Egypt and the plagues and everything that happened there. So you got, you got fire, you got burning sulfur. Now, God could just fashion this out of nowhere. I mean, he is God. He could do supernatural things. Or he could use the earthquake to trigger volcanic activity in that region. There are a number of volcanoes in that part of the world. At present, they're all considered dormant or, or extinct. God might just say, wake up. Get to work. All to defend his beloved, Israel. And in your notes, all of this will be God's supernatural intervention into the affairs of men. Does God intervene in the world today? Yes, we are not deists. Okay, A deist believes that God created the world, gave it a spin, and then just kind of stepped back and no longer engaged in the affairs of men. Uh, which means if you believe that, you don't believe in miracles. But if you believe in miracles, then you definitely believe that God is active in our world. He does intervene from time to time. And Russia and her hordes will gather around Israel. The West will do nothing uh, beyond some inane you know, protests, ask a few questions. Nobody is going to stand up for Israel. They will appear to be all alone, and the only place that they will have to look up in that or to look in that moment is up. And they will see the hand of God delivering them in a supernatural way. And the forces who come to take over this land will discover they're going to be buried there. And the world will be stunned. They will have thought Israel was a goner. I mean, they're going to be absolutely slack-jawed at what God will do as the enemies of Israel are annihilated and not just on the battlefront. Look at Ezekiel 39.6. He says, I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely, securely on the coastlands, and they shall know. That I am the Lord. You see what's happening here? God isn't just dealing with the military on the front lines. No, he is going to destroy the fascists and these Russians, not just in your notes on the battlefield, but those who hide in secret. All right? How will he do this? He's going after the coastlands. Those are not people involved in the invasion meaning he's expanding the width and the breadth of his wrath to include the totality of these nations. In your notes, it's suggested that there there could be targets throughout uh, Russia, throughout the allied nations that will be supernaturally struck and consumed. What kind of targets? Could be missile silos, could be military bases, could be radar installations things like that surveillance places intelligence headquarters other government buildings doesn't have to be military could also be religious centers could be mosques could be schools islamic schools that back any place that calls for the destruction of israel god could wipe it out whether they're on the field of battle or nice and cozy back home he's going to take them out bottom line the bottom line is this, there won't be any further threat to Israel after this from these nations. There will be no expectation that they will rise to hassle Israel anymore. There won't be any like after all of this is over, nobody's going to say, well, we repelled them this time. Hopefully they've learned their lesson now. There won't be any question. There will be a period on the end of that sentence. They will be wiped, wiped off the earth. What, what they came to do to Israel will be done to them. Now, that may send a chill down your spine when you think about entire nations, but it is in keeping with the rest of prophecy as we interpret it. Because in your notes, God may well be using this Gog, Magog invasion to once and for all eliminate the traditional enemies of Israel, particularly the forces of Islam, particularly those forces. Why do you say that, Pastor Scott? Because I think that this likely uh, paves the way for the emerging final empire of the Antichrist, which is, as we've said, a revived Roman empire. All right? Uh, When does that begin? It begins before the tribulation. Antichrist is gonna rise. He's gonna have a network. And he will initiate the tribulation. How? By signing a treaty with Israel. What will that treaty allow Israel to do? It's going to allow them to rebuild their temple. It's going to allow them to renew sacrifices. Where would they put such a temple? Where was it historically? Why, it's on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. What's on the Temple Mount right now? A mosque? Dome of the Rock? You think those are still going to be there when they rebuild the temple? I don't think so. I don't think so. Now notice, I don't see America here. I'm just saying. Anyway, what's the timing? What's the timing? Well, when will this armada of nations come down upon Israel? It's going to happen when Israel has no one else to turn to. Uh, America is her greatest ally in the world right now. Something's going to change between now and this event. And uh, when they're all alone, that's when God is going to intervene and wipe out their enemies. Now, we read in Ezekiel 38.8, it says, After many days you will be mustered in the latter years. That's a very, very important phrase. There is a question that some have raised. They, they've pointed out that Israel has been invaded before, many times. Could this not refer to a past invasion that has already occurred? Could this prophecy Relate to say Rome. Okay? Could this be, you know, a different invasion, a previous invasion? And the answer in your notes would be this Israel has never been invaded on this scale. Never on this scale. Nor has any invasion involved these particular nations together. Iran has never invaded Israel. Russia has never invaded Israel. You know, Turkey has never done that. So this is. Future. This is future for you and I. Furthermore, Ezekiel says this will happen when Israel has been regathered from around the earth. When did that happen? In the early 20th century. So this this prophecy could not be fulfilled until after 1948. And they haven't been invaded since 1948. So we know that this is yet future. Now in your notes, that phrase, latter years, I told you to underline that. That phrase refers to the era in which Israel's national history finds fulfillment, which puts this event near the end of human history. This is going to be near the end of humanity's time on planet Earth, before the kingdom age. Before the kingdom age. Now, could it be during the tribulation? Yes, but it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to. There's nothing mentioned in this invasion that requires it happening during the tribulation or or even after the rapture. Okay, so it could literally happen any time. I'll talk about that more in just a moment. But look at Ezekiel thirty nine nine. It says there then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out. Watch what they're going to do. They will make fires. ...of the weapons and burn them, shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, clubs and spears, and they will make fires of them for seven years. Seven. Some of you see that number, you're going, oh no, we're going to talk about numbers again? No. Don't worry. Verse 10 says, so that they will not need to take wood out of the field or cut down any of the forests. Remember, they've been through natural calamity. You've got an earthquake. You've got hail. You've got mountains collapsing. They don't have any natural resources That they had prior. So what are they going to do? They're going to take the the remnants of the weaponry of their enemies, and they're going to burn all of that to sustain themselves. It goes on. For they will make their uh, excuse me. They will make their fires of the weapons. They will seize the spoil of those who despoiled them, and plunder those who plundered them. Declares the Lord God. You don't mess with God's people. You don't mess with God's people. Mess around and find out, as they say, right? Ezekiel 39, 9, and 10, in your notes, after the battle, Israel will burn the plunder for how long? Seven years. Why is this length of time important? Seven years. Why is it important? Because, in your notes, you cannot locate those seven years during the millennium, during the kingdom age, the reign of Christ, which lasts for a thousand years you can't put these seven years during that time that's a new earth that's a new day christ is reigning and ruling there's not gonna be burning of weapons it's a new it's a new earth all right so you gotta move it back from the kingdom age now it could be during the tribulation if Russia and her allies are destroyed at the beginning of the seven-year period, because the tribulation is only seven years. You need seven years to burn. And so it it could happen during the tribulation, but it's going to happen immediately at the very beginning because you'd need the entire tribulation to burn, according to this prophecy, if it's going to be fulfilled. Now, I think that's unlikely. I don't think it's going to happen that way. Here's why. The last half of the tribulation, we call that the great tribulation, Those three and a half years, that is the time that initiates when the Antichrist breaks his covenant with Israel. What happens after that? They flee. And he pursues them with a vengeance. He wants to eradicate them at that time. So they're on the run from the Antichrist. Are they going to be burning this stuff and, and be on the run at the same time? No. No, I don't think so. And so I believe in your notes, that the seven years burning the plunder of Gog must be spent before the millennium, but it could be before or after the rapture. Now, I'm a pre-trib rapture guy, okay, as you're going to see next week. And invite your friends. Next week's going to be a whole heap of fun. But there's nothing in your Bible that dictates that the rapture is the next event on the prophetic timeline this could be the next event on the prophetic timeline. Um, Nothing needs to happen for the rapture to happen. I believe it can happen at any moment, as we'll see next week, but this could occur prior to the rapture. It's possible. I don't know. I don't know when this is going to happen. I'm inclined to say it'll happen before the, uh, the tribulation. I'm inclined to say it'll happen before the rapture, but I don't know. It's definitely going to happen before the millennium. You're not going to have burning going on when Christ is reigning. Um, I lean toward a pre-rapture, Gog Magog, because I believe that it paves the way perfectly for the rise of Antichrist and what's going to happen in the end times. Now, some people say, well, you don't see America coming to their aid. We're their biggest ally. Maybe that means that the rapture has happened and all the Christians in America are gone, and that's why we don't come to their aid. All right, that's a valid point. It's possible. Nothing to be dogmatic about. There's very little to be dogmatic about when it comes to these matters. America is less and less a Christian nation all the time, though. I must point that out. Uh, Ezekiel 39, verse 11, says, On that day I will give to Gog a place for burial in Israel, the valley of the travelers east of the sea. It will block the travelers, for there Gog and his multitude will be buried, and it will be called the valley of Haman Gog. For seven months, there's that word again, seven. For seven months the house of Israel will be burying them. In order to cleanse the land, all the people of the land will bury them and it will bring them renown on the day that I show my glory, declares the Lord God. They will set apart men. Watch this. They, will, they Israel, will set apart men to travel through the land regularly and bury those travelers remaining on the face of the land so to cleanse it, so as to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make their search. What an undertaking. This is like a national initiative that's gonna happen on the part of Israel to bury the dead of those who sought to end them. Verse 15: And when these travel through the land and anyone sees a human bone, what? Then he shall set up a sign by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Haman Gog. Hamona, also the name of the city, thus shall they cleanse the land. Usually, it's the invaders who bury their own dead. However, in this instance, there won't be any invaders left. And that's why I say, I think these nations are gone. They would be the ones to come and get their dead. They're not coming. They're gone. So Israel will do it. They're going to do it. And the number of casualties will be so vast that only this, this valley, the valley of Amon that's it's going to be the world's biggest cemetery. Okay? How long will it take to bury the bodies in your notes? Seven months. You're like, oh, I knew we'd be back to numerology. Well, there, there you go. By the way, this is the perfect session because it's session seven. Did you get that? All right. Congratulations. All right. All right, now let's look at the reason, the reason for all of this. Why will God destroy these, these russo islamo fascist insert your own descriptor, uh, invaders? Number one, because, in your notes, they are against God and humanity. They're against God. The seven years, uh, in your notes, uh, excuse me, the Russians... Are against God and humanity as a nation historically. Now, not all. I I know many Russians, sweet people. Okay, we're not talking about individuals of that ethnic lineage. We're talking about the geopolitical nation. Uh, Russia historically has caused more death to more people because of the spread of communism uh, and other things than any nation in the history of the world. Nazi Germany, obviously bad, obviously bad. Uh, But some of the worst governments in the world today are communist, and the influence of Russia historically that fostered that communism cannot be underestimated. I'm thinking of North Korea. They wouldn't even exist as they are today without Russia. That all happened after World War II. Okay? Red China, Cuba, Laos, Vietnam. Uh, This doesn't even include the spread of socialism, which apparently America is not immune to as of late. All right? So the way that that Russia historically has spread dictatorships around the world through godlessness, through persecution of believers, I know they supposedly have renounced communism. Eh. Reprehensible, all right? The militant Islamists are butchers. They are butchers. You get a lot of converts when you say, you got to believe like we believe or we're taking your head. Uh, The spread of Islam has often been through fear, they've massacred countless. Christians, Jews, many others, God will deal with them, okay? So uh, they're against God and humanity. Second reason, it's so that Israel and the nations will recognize God's power and authority. In your notes, they're going to recognize his power and authority. They will. Ezekiel 38 Verse 16, what does he say? He says, you'll come up against my people, Israel, like a cloud governing, uh, covering the land. In the latter days, I'll bring you against my land that the nations may know me. Right? Verse 23 of that chapter. I'll show my greatness and my holiness, make myself known uh, in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am uh, the Lord. Uh, Ezekiel 39, 6, I will send fire on Magog, those who dwell securely. They shall know that I am the Lord. The Lord. Verse 22 The house of Israel shall know that I am. This is God's primary purpose in all of history. It's His glory. He wants to be known by all. That's His purpose. And so, therefore, in your notes, the appropriate response to acts of judgment, whether you are a recipient or you are an observer, what is the appropriate response? It's worship. God displays His might that we may acknowledge him as God and worship. Now that is the appropriate response. Is it inevitable in this case? It is reasonable to expect that there would be people who would worship God in the aftermath of this. However, uh, a revival is not prophesied to come at this time on the scale that it one day will, especially for Israel. When will that be? During the tribulation, at the midpoint. But maybe this will serve to prepare their hearts for such a revival. Uh, There will be a revival. It will be like none the world has ever known. Israel will be at the heart of that. So God may use this to start to chip away at some hearts for this massive harvest of souls later on. Now, as we wrap this up here, could the Gog-Magog conflict be the same thing as The Battle of Armageddon. Some people say, Pastor Scott, are we getting in the weeds here? I mean, are we looking at this as its own thing? But really, it's the same as the last battle, the battle to end all battles, Battle of Armageddon. Is it the same thing? Uh, It could be, but I doubt it. And here's a few reasons why. In your notes, I've already put this in there so you don't have to write anything down, all right? Gog -gog. Magog. little contrast here. Gog Magog, that invasion will be made of limited, specific... Allied nations, all right? You've seen the list. It is finite. Armageddon, it will be made of all nations on earth. All nations, which tells you something about the scope of that force. Revelation 16, for they, this is about Armageddon, the forces of Antichrist, they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world, all the rulers in the world, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Romans 19:9. Uh, 1919, and I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth, all of them, with their armies gathered. So we're talking about all the governments of the earth, all the nations of the earth at Armageddon, not just a limited contingency like this battle here. Uh, Secondly, Gog and Magog, the invasion comes from the north. We read that in Ezekiel 39, Armageddon, they come from all over the earth. I mean, they're from everywhere. This, This invasion in Ezekiel, they're coming from one direction, Armageddon, It's all the nations on the earth, so they're coming from all corners, right? And then we see they have different purposes. Gog and Magog, the purpose, as we've seen, is to take spoil. At least that's the leader's objective. Gog wants to take spoil. Uh, The purpose of Armageddon is to destroy Israel and her God. They're not interested in spoil. They're not coming to reap any riches from the land. They don't care about it. In fact, Israel's not even in that land at that time. Where are they going to be? They're going to be hiding out. And so Antichrist is not going after the land. They're not there. If he just wanted the land, he could take whatever's in the land. He's going after the people. He's going after the people. They have fled. And then next, Gog Magog will be protested, as we've seen. It's albeit in a neutered, weak manner. Armageddon will not be protested. The nations will be unanimous. They're all in. Uh, and then we see that Gog, Gog, those invaders will be put down, as we saw, through natural catastrophe, earthquake, fire, torrential rain, hail. Supernatural, to be sure, but it's God using elements, the elements, to bring all this about Armageddon. The forces will be destroyed by Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ himself. Now, that's going to be a sight to behold. And you know who will behold it? You. you if you're a Christian, you will be there. You'll get to witness it. You'll see it. Now, you know, wouldn't it be cool? I don't know if you see Gog Magog. Wouldn't it be cool to see both? Some of you are like, yeah, I don't know if I want to see Gog Magog. That didn't sound too appetizing. Well, I don't know about that. You will see Armageddon. How will that play out, by the way? 2 Thessalonians 2, 8, it says, and then the lawless one, Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill. Think about Jesus' killing. He will kill him by the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. It will be his words and his glory that will evaporate Antichrist and his forces. Come on. Yeah. I mean, we call this a battle. It's not much of a battle, frankly. Uh over in the blink of an eye. I had a young adult once. I was teaching on this with a group of young people, and this one kid got so upset at the brevity of this battle. He's like, oh, man. He's like, you know, I want to fight. I'm going to have a supernatural body. I think I could do some damage, and I'm like, you're not going to do anything, dude. He's like, what? But I want to fight for Jesus. I'm like, you know, he didn't need you. So just sit back and relax and enjoy, you know? Uh, You get to enjoy it. He's going to consume them with the breath of his mouth. The Romans 19, 20, it says, And the rest, his his forces were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and the birds were gorged with their flesh. He's just going to speak them out of existence. What power. Uh, Also in your notes, Gog, Magog, the invaders, are going to be put down in the mountains of Israel. In the mountains of Israel. Uh, We learn that Ezekiel 39 Verse 4, you shall fall on the mountains of Israel. This is Gog and Magog, you and all your hordes. Uh, I'll give you to the birds of prey of every sort, of the beasts of the field. Uh, Armageddon, it won't be in the mountains. Uh, the forces will be put down between a place called Petra and, and of course, Jerusalem. Uh, the reason I say that is because where Israel will flee to is going to be in the land of Jordan according to scripture, and I believe, as do many scholars, it will be to the ancient city of Petra. Uh, It's to this place Israel will retreat. Micah 2, verse 12 says, I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel, this is as they flee uh, in that day. I will put them together as the sheep of Basra. Uh, as the flock in the midst of their fold, they shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. Basra is identified as the location where this this ancient city, these ruins called Petra, are located. There's a site there. You may have seen it in a movie. It's it's a, an amazing archaeological locale. You see it. One of the Indiana Jones movies features Petra. I think it's the one with the Holy Grail. There's this narrow corridor that you go through to... to access Petra, very narrow, so it's a highly defensible place. Makes perfect sense for Israel to end up there. But between that region and Jerusalem, there is something called the Megiddo Valley. Revelation 16 says they assembled there at the place in Hebrew called Armageddon. Armageddon means the Valley of Megiddo. I've seen it. I've been there. Tradition holds that Napoleon... Came there, he viewed it, and his words were, It is as though God designed a battlefield. You know? He'd never seen a more perfect location for war. Almost like it was determined before time began this is where it's going to go down, this is where my son is going to annihilate the forces of Antichrist. And then just to finally close it down here, in, in Gog Magog's case, it's going to be launched while Israel is living in security. We've already talked about that. They'll be living in a, a time of unwalled villages. They're going to feel total confidence. They're not going to have to build walls, lock their doors, so that they will strike when they feel confident. Armageddon, it will be launched when Israel's in hiding. They're going to be on the run. They're going to be holed up at you know the Jewish Alamo, all right? That's Gog Magog, except Alamo didn't end well, this will. That's Gog Magog, going to play an important role in the end times, paving the way for the Antichrist. All right, next week is going to be, as I said, a lot of fun. We're going to talk about our blessed hope, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you some biblical reasons as to the timing of that. Uh, No dates, not going to give you any dates, all right? I don't do that. But uh, sequentially, we'll see kind of where it, where it would fall in the timetable. All right? Let me pray for you, and then I want to tell you about one more thing before you go. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon everybody in this room. Lord, thank you for their deep love uh, for your word. And we look forward, God, to studying next week about your coming, and the week after that, and taking some questions, uh, God, that, that people may have. Uh, you're not afraid of questions. We're not afraid of answers and we just trust you for it all and we give you the glory in Jesus' name, amen.